Those are some of the most important words in the New Testament. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth." John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, there is in all the religious confessions of the world nothing that is remotely parallel to John chapter 1 and the first 18 verses in what it tells us about God and the person of Jesus Christ. And what I want to suggest to you this evening is that there are only two religions in all the world. There are two religions. They go under various different names, but there are only two religions. And the first says that there is a creator and a creation, that the creator is totally distinct from and transcendent over the world that he has made, and that that God of necessity, as we're going to see, is personal and relational, and that he has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, that's the biblical worldview. The other worldview and all other religious perspectives reduce to this, that there is only the creation. Now, some of these worldviews posit some kind of being, some kind of divine being, but I want to suggest to you this evening and show you that, in fact, all other worldviews reduce everything to one. The Christian worldview says that there are two things. In terms of being, there is the uncreated being of God, and there is the created world of nature, the creation. The other other worldview says that all things are ultimately one. They may appear to be distinctions, we may posit the idea of the divine, but in the end there is a continuity of being of all things. Now, that's why I want to suggest to you that the 
is the ultimate distinction between the Christian worldview, its uniqueness, and all other perspectives on reality. I read a story a number of years ago about a boy who didn't like doing his evening chores, and his mum said to him, I want you to fetch me the broom from the shed so that you can sweep the hall. The shed was in the garden, of course, and he said to his mum, well, it's dark, and I'm scared of the dark. You know I don't like going out in the dark. She says, son, there's nothing to fear because God is everywhere, and he's with you wherever you go. So just go and get me the broom from the shed. The son is unconvinced. He's looking for reassurance. So he said, Mom, are you sure that God is really out there? And his mum says to him, yes, son, I'm absolutely sure. So off you go and sing along the way. And the boy is still a bit concerned, so he opens the door just ajar a little bit. And he says, God, if you're out there, would you please fetch me the broom from the shed? Now, it would be wonderful if we could solve all of these big questions in a simpler way as leaning out the door and saying, God, would you just please show me some clear evidence of who you are? Make it plain to me. In Western uh, culture, what's happened in recent years is that the question of religion has been politicized. So it's impossible today to be a Christian without feeling like you're being political as well, because all the major issues that are associated with our faith, such as God and His law, God and His differentiation and distinction of all things in terms of the differences and distinctions He's made within creation, light and darkness, truth and false, good and evil, male and female, and how He's defined reality for us and life for us. Well, we live in a culture today where we've redefined marriage and human sexuality, and we've redefined beginning and end of life issues, and all these things are critical and central to the Bible, and so it feels impossible to be a Christian without being political. Well, of course, the Christian faith does have political implications, but in a world where religion has been politicized, people often pride themselves in suggesting that they are non-religious. While those who claim to be Christian in particular and profess faith in Christ are considered mentally ill members of the religious right very often. In fact, we're we're told increasingly in our culture that uh, if you believe in Christ and the Bible, you are suffering from some kind of a psychosis. Because it's not politically correct to profess faith in Christ increasingly in our culture because of the implications of that. And this leads to the social reality today that most people's understanding of Christianity is a misunderstanding. Most people's understanding of Christianity is a misunderstanding. And so it is important to realize two things right at the outset of this conference. First of all, the nature of religion. Second of all, to notice that every person in the world without exception is religious. So don't think that you are weighing up or considering a choice between being religious or non-religious. You're simply choosing between two religions that come in different forms. Biblical faith or some form of paganism expressing itself in a multiplicity of different ways and under a number of different names. 
The question, of course, is which perspective is true? James C. Livingston has said that a human being is rightly called homo religiosus or a religious animal. Everybody, that is, is religious. The term religion actually probably, although its origin is somewhat mysterious, it probably has an agricultural origin, meaning simply to tie back. The idea was that you get things growing in the same direction. And that, of course, is the function of beliefs, is that they, when you have a shared belief with others, it forms a kind of community. And, of course, large communities are called cultures or civilizations. So where I've just come from in the Middle East, you have Islamic culture or civilization shaped by the Islamic worldview. In the West, we used to have a, we used to call it Christendom, because it was shaped by a Christian worldview, and that shaped our social understanding. If you go to many parts of India today, you'll find that Hinduism dominates the religious landscape, and so you have a uh, caste system and a social reality that's shaped by the Hindu worldview. So what we believe about these things religiously is not simply a matter of the ideas that exist in my head. It is walked out and lived out in terms of all of the aspects of our social and cultural reality. Our faith, what we believe about the world, has inescapable implications for what you will believe about everything. And so there is no such thing as a neutral worldview. Alfred North Whitehead suggested that religion is what an individual does with his solitariness. What do you, what you think about? when you're alone. Paul Tillich wrote with some insight on this issue at least, religion is the state of being grasped by an ultimate concern, a concern which qualifies all other concerns as preliminary and which itself contains the answer to the question of the meaning of our lives. In other words, to to be religious is simply to recognize that you are taken up at some point in your life with ultimate concerns. What are those ultimate concerns? Well, they can be summarized, I think, in four very simple uh, headings. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Origin, meaning, morality, destiny. You can basically subsume all big questions of life under one of those four headings. Ultimate concern. We all have a set of beliefs then a set of values to which we are implicitly or explicitly loyal that help us wrestle with the big questions of life. Everyone. It's not a question of being an adherent of one of the four or five major world religions that makes you religious. We're religious. Every one of your colleagues, your school friends, your neighbors is religious because they are committed to a certain set of values and beliefs about the world, even if they haven't taken the time to think them through and all their implications. Man is ultimately concerned, Tillich says, with his being and about meaning and what conditions him. Now, we're increasingly being told, and I'll talk about this more tomorrow, that your reality, even, even your sexuality as a human being, is nothing more than a social construct. According to Facebook, you may be one of 52 
different gender identities, for example, if you can even begin to fathom what that means. What is it about us? How are we defined? What is it that conditions our being? What is it that ultimately conditions our lives? And so that leads us to the ultimate religious question, the foundational question, which the Apostle John answers for us in the first chapter of John's Gospel, and which everybody else believes in to some degree. We all believe in some kind of unconditioned reality. We recognize that we're conditioned. That is, you know that you're not the creator of the universe and you didn't create yourself. In fact, you didn't choose when you would be born, what country you'd be born in, whether you'd be male or female, what your gifts would be, and so on and so forth. You didn't choose any of that. You're a conditioned being. You know you're a conditioned being. So the question is, what is unconditioned? Is there anything which conditions everything else? That's the way the philosophers have phrased the question. So religion is not about having a public act of worship. What you did tonight in singing was a religious activity, but that doesn't limit religious activity. Religious activity isn't limited to a church or a synagogue or a mosque. It def- it's every aspect of our lives that is defined religiously. In fact, most world religions don't involve any worship at all. Many forms of um, Buddhism involve no worship. Certain forms of Hinduism involve no worship. So obviously being religious isn't about worship. In fact, most of the world's religions are atheistic. They don't even believe in God. Not a personal being that you can know and worship anyway. That idea is exclusive to biblical religion, that there is a personal being that transcends creation who you can know and worship. It's remarkable that many people fail to see this. Now, if you will bear with me with a quotation from a philosopher, you ready for this? You still with me? It's been simple so far. It's going to get harder. Roy Clauser, an important Christian philosopher, he says this. It's very important. He says, in Hinduism, the divine, Brahman, Atman, is not considered a being at all. It is instead an indefinite beingness or being itself. For the same reason, Brahman Atman cannot be strictly called a god if a god is taken to be an individual and personal. Buddhism also denies the divine is a being but goes even further. For for fear that being itself is too definite an expression, it insists on terms such as void, non-being, and nothingness for the divine. So although these religions believe there is a divine reality, they do not believe the divine is a being at all, let alone a supreme one, end quote. So you see that when people go and do their yoga or uh, do their um, uh, mind up uh, meditation and so forth and think they are being non-religious, they're actually being very religious even though they are not engaging with a divine being except themselves, outside of themselves. Many gods, therefore, are expressed within Hinduism. There's a pantheon of millions of gods within Hinduism, but they are secondary, they're derivative, they are not ultimate and divine. So this is where often people get, have a misunderstand things. They say, what do you mean Hinduism doesn't believe in God? There are all kinds of gods, yes, but those gods, 
Those personifications of forces of nature and so on are not ultimate divine reality. And we see this in the same way in the ancient pagan world. And the ancient pagan world isn't some sort of um, dull uh, study for, for the interest of antiquarians. Paganism is back with us very much in our culture. It's everywhere. In fact, Iceland just recently built a temple to the Norse gods again. So paganism is essentially a view that may be filled with various deities and beings, gods, but they don't actually believe that those deities, those personifications of the forces of nature are ultimate reality. Rather, as in the ancient Greek poems of Hesiod and Homer, the gods and all creation evolve from some kind of primeval reality, out of some kind of ancient watery stuff. This is what you find in all the pagan myths, that there is some kind of original primeval chaos out of which all the gods and men and everything else evolved in a continuity of being. The Greeks called it a chain of being. The North American Indians had the totem pole, which expressed the same idea. These gods, then, are just derivative beings. Ultimate reality is nature itself. Now, this was true of the ancient Babylonians, the ancient Egyptians, the Greco-Roman world. There is a one-to-one correspondence between their pantheons of gods. You can trace them all the way back, actually, to Nimrod, the rebel, in Genesis chapters 10 and 11, and the building of the Tower of Babel. Essentially, without um, boring you to death in the first 15 minutes of this conference, all these gods are stationed inside of nature, of reality. They're products of nature. They are not what we would call God. In other words, what develops out of the book of Genesis and what comes out of the pages of John chapter 1 verse 1, because if you're familiar with the Bible, you will immediately notice in verse 1 a deliberate reference back to Genesis chapter 1. And the book of Genesis, what develops in Christian theology, developing out of the book of Genesis, is a God, as I said, who is not a product of nature who comes out of the world. He's not co-relative to the world in any way. He is utterly and totally independent. There is created being, which is the world down here, and then there is uncreated being, and that's God. And believe it or not, that is unique to the Christian worldview. With all the disagreements then that you can find among all the worldviews that you might encounter, and you look at the worldviews of the world, you think this is incredibly complex. You need a PhD in comparative religion to understand all of this. But with all of that complexity, what you actually find is that there is a common belief. All these worldviews and religions have in common the belief in what I'm going to call the divine per se. The divine per se simply means that which is non-dependent. It's independent. It's characterized by being self-explanatory. So what the new atheists tell you is that nature is all there is. It's self-explanatory. What Buddhism and Hinduism ultimately tell you is that the one that lies behind all things is self-explanatory. It's independent. It's the divine per se. Now, to show you how interesting this gets, some of you are probably closer to to remembering your mathematics than I am. 
I hated math, but Pythagoras. Who remembers Pythagoras? Okay, well, did you know that the Pythagoreans believed that everything was dependent, their divine per se, their God concept was numbers. That they believed in an abstract world of numbers upon which everything else depended, and they used to worship numbers. In fact, they sang hymns to numbers. I'll quote you one. This is a prayer to the number 10 from the Pythagoreans. Okay? Bless us, divine number, thou who generatest gods and men. Thou that containest the root and source of eternally flowing creation. For divine number begins with the profound, the pure unity, until it comes to the holy four. Then it begets the mother of all, the all-encompassing, the all-abounding, the firstborn, the never-swerving, the never-tiring, holy ten, the keyholder of all. So instead of the word of God, John 1, 1, the word who became flesh, the Pythagoreans posited an abstract world of numbers. That was their concept of the divine. They felt it appropriate to construct prayers and sing hymns to numbers. So borrowing from my colleague uh, Peter Jones in California, who summarized this religious distinction this way, and this is a good way to remember it, the two worldviews are oneism, that all is one, ultimately, underlying all reality is a pure unity, and twoism, which is that there is a creator distinct from his creation who is personal and relational. That's easy to remember. You've just done a course in comparative religion. That's basically it. Now, you can deal with the details, but that is ultimately what we're dealing with. One plus one for a Pythagoreans, making two as a religious belief. And so all these other worldviews outside of the Christian explanation, what we can say about them is that they are impersonal. So the Christian worldview is unique because it posits a personal, relational God. All other worldviews, which are encompassed within oneism, and I'll take questions at the end, so if you want to dispute this or try and nail me to the wall or something, you can do that at the Q&A period. The, the other worldview is twoism, which is personal. One is impersonal, the other is personal. One says there is creator-creature distinction, uh, the other says, all is one. That means to understand Christianity in our contemporary world must mean that we all recognize first and foremost that all your friends, all your neighbors, all your colleagues, they're all religious. Everybody is religious. We have an inescapably religious character and nature. So the Bible, when you turn to the Bible, the Bible doesn't uh, simply see religion as something that constitutes the worship of the supreme God. Rather, religion in the Bible is the replacement of the true God with any substitute non-dependent reality. So when you see the worship of Baal and Ashtaroth and Diana and so on, all the way through the Bible, both Old and New Testament, the Bible regards religion not just as the worship of God. Oh, I'm religious because I believe in God. No, the Bible regards religion as the replacement of the true God with anything else. It's called idolatry. 
In other words, whatever has a non-dependent status in your worldview, whatever is unconditionally real, that might be matter, it might be spirit, it might be idea, it might be, I don't know what else, nature, that is your concept of God. In my um, mid-teenage years, which is just very recently now, uh, laughing for, um, I did a lot of long-distance running, uh, which I've been talking to uh, uh, Ted and his kids about. I trained a lot of miles a week, and uh, one day I was out running in my home county of Wiltshire, which is in the southwest of England, and Wiltshire, well, England actually generally is characterized by hedgerows, which we don't really see much of in, in, in Canada. Hedgerows are when you've got basically hedges along country lanes. So a lot of North Americans, when they go to England or to Europe in general, find the roads very narrow, very small, a bit scary. And then there are hedges very often that run along these country roads, privet hedges and all, and all kinds of hedges. And I was out running, and it's actually easy to get lost if you're not paying attention. And I was out, I was doing a, uh, a run that day, a 10K run, and I managed to get myself lost. I don't know how I wasn't concentrating. And obviously when you're running and you get lost, the problem is, is obviously you're not in a car. And if you take a wrong turn or go in significant distance out of your way, you do have to run back still. So I thought, uh, after a short while, I was thinking, I'm not quite sure whether I'm on the right road here. And I saw an elderly couple doing some gardening. So I thought I would, in the front of their cottage, so I thought I'd just go and ask them. So I wandered over to them, and they asked me two questions. I said, I'm lost. They said, where have you come from, and where are you going? Where have you come from? Where are you going? I explained where I'd left from, and they gave me instructions to find my way back. It turned out I was about uh, five miles out of my way, because obviously I'd only run running two and a half miles in the wrong direction means you're, uh, if you're going this way and you're supposed to be over here, means you've got a, a long way back, okay? Now, I was uh, just geographically muddled, but what we find in our culture today is this kind of religious confusion of spiritual and moral and what we can call metaphysical confusion, but we actually only have to ask those same two questions. Where have we come from? Where are we going? These are the, the foundational and basic questions. The difficulty now that makes your situation in particular and my situation in this new generation a little bit more unique is that it is difficult to give directions to people who don't think it's possible to be lost. Because we used to live in a, in, in a period as Christians where, in my, certainly in my grandparents' generation, where there was a strong sense of an understanding that there was right and wrong, there was truth and falsehood, there was the right way to go, there was the wrong way to go, and those were clear. But with the pagan assumption that in the end all is one, it's actually not possible to be lost. That is, it's not possible theoretically to be lost. So the question is, do we pass people the revealed map of the Bible, or do we go and tell them to meditate on non-being until they realize the divine within? 
That's the religion of Oprah Winfrey. And that's the popular religious metaphor, is that if all roads lead to God, and if all religions are just as good as any other and truth is relative to history or time or circumstance or whatever it may be, then all you need to do is self-discovery. Realize yourself. Realize the divine within. That's the dominant cultural message of our time. So people don't really think it's possible to be lost today. Let me illustrate this for a moment. With humanism and paganism, the point of, of reference for truth and reality ceases to be the God of the Bible. That is a twoist world. So, for me as a Christian, I have an absolute referent for truth. It's God and His revealed Word. It doesn't change. The Bible says that uh, God is unchanging. He cannot lie. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, that gives me an objective referent for all of life. If I want to understand human sexuality, I don't need to uh, go and take a course on queering culture at University of Toronto. I can actually refer to Scripture and discover what human sexuality is. If I want to know what truth is, I have a referent in the being of God. But in humanism or paganism, human beings become the measure of all things. They are an expression of the divine per se, the one. That is, in a universe without a transcendent personal God who is revealing himself, you are the point of reference for truth. I mean, that's, that's not difficult to understand, is it? If there's not two kinds of being, uncreated being, the being of God, and the created being the creation. If there's only the creation, then there's no point of reference here. This is an illusion, and all you can do is discover a point of reference or make yourself the ultimate point of reference. Now, if you are the point of reference for truth, you can't be lost. You can only be lost if you are relative to or related to something else. Let me put this into a visual picture for you. Imagine you find yourself on a raft. You know what a raft is, right? Yeah? Sometimes I still, after 11 years in Canada, use a word that people are looking at. Hey, what are you talking about? Imagine you find yourself, you wake up and find yourself on a raft at dusk on the middle of the ocean. And all you can see in every direction is the rising and falling of the waves. You have no idea where you are. That would be a pretty disorienting experience, wouldn't it? All you could see in any direction is the sea. Imagine that for a moment. Then you look up into the sky, and because you're not in Edmonton or Toronto, there's no light pollution, so you can see the stars. Right? They're a transcendent referent, a point of reference by which you might navigate your vessel to safety as the ancient mariners did. Before there was GPS, there were the stars by which sailors, star charts, enabled you to uh, travel the seas safely. Find your way around. 
Now, you decide on your raft that you're going to ignore the referent in the heavens, the reference point in the heavens, and you're going to make yourself the point of reference instead for navigating your vessel. So you think, well, forget the stars. That's not helpful. I'm the point of reference for navigation. Now, of course, you're on the raft. So the problem is you move wherever this vessel does. So how do you measure direction, distance, speed, or time when you are everywhere and nowhere in relation to yourself? Are you tracking with this? You're not mapping your world relative to the stars, but relative to yourself. But you're moving with the raft. So you can't say, well, I've gone from point A to point B. Look, because point A is point B. It's a bit like if you left the harbor in a ship and the harbor moved with you, have you left the harbor? This is the essence of the actual problem of knowledge within all paganism. Because in all other worldviews and the Christian worldview, you do not actually need to seek to find God. In the end, you are discovering your own divinity. Definition becomes impossible. I remember watching a Star Trek episode a few years ago. Uh, that probably dates me now. I used to think that it was really cool to talk about Star Trek, the next generation. And now young people look at me and go, what's that? Somebody can feel my pain there. Well, have you, who's heard of Star Trek? Okay. Who has watched Star Trek First Contact? Who hasn't watched it? Put your hands up. Don't be ashamed. Shame on you. Put your hands down. Well, I watched an episode of Star Trek once that was about the Enterprise being caught in some kind of temporal rift in space, which was dimensionless. So they... It was actually quite a scary episode psychologically, so they went off at warp nine in one direction and came back to exactly the same point. They hadn't gone anywhere. They tried this in every direction until they realized they were trapped in this temporal rift. Well, being a non-believer in the God of Scripture is like being caught in a temporal rift or being out on that raft without anything to be your reference point. And this is the essence, actually, of the first temptation in the Bible. The, the biblical temptation to our first parents was this. Through Satan, you will be as gods, knowing that is defining for yourself good and evil, right from wrong, truth from falsehood. You can offer a competing interpretation of reality against gods. That was the temptation of Satan. It's an ancient one, and it's exactly the same one we're dealing with today. You will be as God. You can be the reference point. You decide. You define your reality. You self-identify. You define the truth. The difficulty is, is defining anything, speaking truth, or, or, or knowing anything in this worldview is like trying to jump on your own shadow. You ever tried to jump on your shadow? It's the same picture, just a, it's the same illustration, just a different picture. If you, your shadow, because it's just a reflection of you, you can't jump on it. When you try and jump on it, your shadow moves. I can see some of you, like, with your the brain is sort of, you know, every 
molecule is working right now to try and figure out. Right? But it's actually really simple. You can't jump on your own shadow. You're identical with the object you try and jump on. It moves with you. You can never land on it. Now, this is the problem in the anti-Christian view of the world. You can never know truth in such a perspective, and so you can never be lost. There's nothing to really know outside yourself. Anything you think you know is just a reflection of the self. And while we're at it, let's talk about this for a moment. How do you know you are a self? How do you know you're an individual? Never mind, you know, thinking about getting home for your Xbox games and, you know, whatever else it is. Just think about this for a moment. How do you know that you are a self, that you're an individual person? Philosophers have asked this question. Descartes tried to come up with the answer. Anybody know, anybody know what Descartes said, suggested at the beginning of modern philosophy? Cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. It's actually not exact logic. Who is I? How do you know you're a self? Well, believe it or not, you can only really have a negative definition of the self. That is, that you know you're an individual because of the not-self. You are aware that you're not the chair you're sitting on. You're not the person sat next to you. You're not the ceiling. You're not God. You're not your environment. So you have a a sense of consciousness because of plurality, you have a sense of individuality. Because of plurality, you have a sense of individuality. So we define ourselves in relationship to something else. Interestingly, John Calvin begins his institutes with this understanding that, that human beings are creatures of God. We are relative to God. That's how we understand who we are as human beings, that we're relative to God. We're creatures. If you deny all of that, well, you're not related back to God. You're relative only to the self. But if there's nothing other than the self ultimately to define you, the self disappears because you can't identify it. If you can only identify the self by the not-self and there's no not-self, how do you know you're a self? Now, this is, now, you might think, now, this is just a word game. No, it isn't. Buddhists believe that. Buddhists believe, as do Hindus ultimately, that behind everything at root is non-being. And for the Buddhist, uh, for the Hindu, it's being itself. But you can't define that being. It has no attributes. As soon as you describe it, it's not being itself anymore. So the hope in... Uh, Buddhism is nirvana. But you will never say, yes, I reached nirvana. I'm there with Michael Hutchinson. Was that the band? Was that nirvana? I could be, I could be wrong. My wife's saying no, so I better shut up and just forget. Pop culture is not my strength. Um, but nirvana is not somewhere where you would arrive and say, I made it to heaven, to nirvana. No, because there is no self in nirvana. The self disappears. The self is an illusion. Same in Hinduism. You see, actually, if you can't identify yourself, it's annihilation. And if there's no not-self, I mean, Sam Harris, I'll talk about this tomorrow, 
in his recent book on, he's an atheist, one of the new atheists in his recent book, Waking Up, actually reveals that he's a pagan. He's a Buddhist. He's been on all kinds of extended trips to try and reach cessation, which is the discovery that actually reality is some kind of illusion. The self is an illusion. Only the triune God of the Bible can identify himself in relationship to himself. This is why I told you you were going to have to think tonight. Why can the God of the Bible identify himself in relationship to himself? Well, John tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Unity and diversity, plurality in the being of God. God can self-identify because of the nature of who he is. He's the triune, he's a relational community of being. Now, I've just explained to you how knowledge starts. That the foundation of all knowledge, of all truth, can only be in the God who can say, I am that I am. The, the Christian gospel, you see, in the Bible tells us something very different than the pagan worldview. It tells us that we're not God. It tells us that we are lost and that God has sent Jesus Christ, His Son, to seek and to save the lost. That's, that is the meaning of John's prologue. That we are not lost on this shoreless ocean where we can't know who we are or what this world is or what meaning is or what truth is, which is where every person who denies Scripture ultimately lands. That's where contemporary philosophy has ended up, by the way. Modern Western philosophy, which philosophers say is footnotes to Plato, literally means that out on that raft, imagine you're on that raft again at dusk on the middle of the ocean, and you have a few of those buoys. You know what a buoy is? You know those things where you're swimming and you're trying to, they're trying to keep you in a certain area of the, the lake? Right? You've got some buoys on the lake, and all, ignoring the transcendent referent in the heavens, all you can do is arbitrarily map the universe, the world, map the sea. So you kick off a buoy there, say that's as good a place as any to start, and off you go in your raft, and you get a certain distance away, and you kick off another one, and you start mapping things. But that's purely arbitrary. And that's what human knowledge is without a reference back to God. It's arbitrary. You might have that meaning, but I might have a different meaning, and you can choose another meaning, and you can, you can kick your buoys off somewhere else, and you can have this meaning, and you can have another meaning. It's all relative. It's all subjective. There's no design plan. There's no God. Let me give you one more illustration just to make sure this point has sunk home. Before there was Xbox or Wii or whatever else that you kids do these days, there would connect the dot puzzles. That's what I did when I was a kid, right? Do you remember those? Do you know what a connect the dot puzzle is? It's when a child is learning to draw and to recognize shapes. And so what you do is sometimes the dots have a number, and by connecting the dots, you discover the child, by connecting the dots, discovers it's a house, it's a giraffe, it's a car. At first, the page just looks like a series of dots. But when you connect them, 
the meaning of the picture emerges. Now, in the Christian worldview alone, where there is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, a personal, relational God who has a will, a purpose, a design for all things, there is a relationship between all those dots, just as there is an author of that puzzle. And when you connect them, the meaning of reality emerges. So all human knowledge on the Christian worldview is reconstructive of God's knowledge. That's what the early scientists in the West believed, by the way. They said, we're thinking God's thoughts after him. In other words, when we encounter reality as Christians, we discover God's meaning. We discover God's definition. That's what science is. That's what all human ingenuity is. It's the rediscovery. When we discover truth, it's the reconstructive, uh, it's reconstructive of God's meaning and definition of all reality. It's like that connect-the-dot puzzle. But what if there was no author to the connect-the-dot puzzle? What if it were just dots on a page? Everything's come up in this oneism from the void, from this primeval chaos. There's no design plan. There's no God. There's no purpose. There's no meaning. It's just the particulars of our experience, all those dots. Well, I might come and with my pencil and say, now, I think that the, the world means this. I'll connect them this way. But somebody else has every right on that worldview to come along and say, no, 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 no. I'm going to connect them like this. That's the meaning of God. No, no, no. I'm going to them, connect them like this. Hence, the multiplicity of different perspectives. Now, our Western culture says that's all there is. So, we must have a multicultural, by which they mean philosophically pluralistic, culture. Because no one worldview can claim to be really true. We're all just arbitrarily mapping reality. Religion is a human construct. Gender is a human construct. Marriage is a human construct. And on and on. Everything that's happening in our culture today is completely logical based on a non-Christian worldview. Some of you are wishing I'd be off already, but I'm going to carry on for a few more minutes. The Apostle John, you see, tells us that in him was light. We Christians preach Christ, we begin with the revelation of God because we begin with a transcendent referent, with an absolute starting point in the God of Scripture. John tells us that in him was light, that is, he was the star by which all else is illuminated. God for the Apostle John is not the conclusion at the end of an argument, a neutral argument from the bare facts. There are no such thing as bare facts in the Christian worldview. There are only God-created facts. Bare facts is an atheistic worldview. All our facts, John tells us, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Actually, the New Testament goes on to tell us that things invisible, thrones, dominions, powers, authority, visible, invisible, everything was made through him and for him. That's why Jesus is able to say in Scripture, not a hair from your head falls without my Father. They're all numbered. Not a sparrow falls from the sky 
he says, without my father. That is to say, the things that seem most insignificant, a hair falling out of your head, a sparrow somewhere falling out of the sky, everything has a meaning in terms of the purposes of God, the providence of God, the government of God over all things. That's called the doctrine of providence. Now, if we begin our thinking with the Word of God, we can conclude with God. But if you begin with yourself, you end with nothing but yourself. And actually, I've shown you, you end up with not even that. God's revelation is our starting point, and our faith seeks understanding as we see the explanatory power of the Word of God. And so being a Christian is like... a robin emerging from an egg to suddenly discover that that cocoon it was in is not everything after all, the self, but actually there's a big wide world out there. That's why the Bible talks about conversion as being born again. Now, the Apostle John tells us the Word was not created. That is, Jesus Christ is not part of dependent reality. He's uncreated. Now, he was made incarnate, but he, was, he is uncreated. He is independent divinity. We cannot say, as some in, even in so-called modern evangelicalism do, that there was something divine about Jesus. That's rubbish. There wasn't something divine about him. He was God. He was with God, and he was God. God's self-communication in terms of revelation in history begins with this act of creation. So John says, in the beginning was the Word, and all things were made through Him. So there are no independent powers in nature that operate outside of the power and ordination of God. Nature has become a personification, you see, the way in which people want to ascribe will and wisdom and mother nature. and It's a way of trying to give personality to that which is impersonal, as though there is some design in, a des- in an undesigned universe. Biblical faith, then, tells us that creation is not divine. It's not an emanation or an extension of an impersonal principle. It is the product of the creative act of the personal Word of God who was manifest in Jesus Christ. Without the Trinity, then, revealed in the incarnate Word, Jesus Christ, all we have is an absolute unity or continuity of being, and everything becomes social construction. There is no design. There is no plan. There is no purpose. It's an impersonal world. Now, for those of you who may say, well, yeah, but that's not what the scientists say, is it? I mean, some of these spiritualists, some of these occultists may say that, but surely the scientists, I mean, they talk about the real concrete world, don't we? Well, I've just mentioned Sam Harris, but actually let me uh, quote to you how, to show you how the religious character of this belief in nature, rather than a God above nature, expresses itself religiously even amongst the scientists. So one of the uh, scientists and popular science writer, Chet Ramo, who the famous scientist Stephen Jay Gould endorsed as a wise humanist, 
showing us how to, quote, heal the false and unnecessary rifts in our intellectual culture by his bridging the gap of scientific knowledge and religion, says this. This is Chet Ramo. Listen to this. The God of spiraling powers resides in nature beyond all metaphors, beyond all scriptures, beyond all final theories. It is the ground and source of our sense of wonderment, of power, of powerlessness, of light, of dark, of meaning, and of bafflement. It is the God whose history began with the first human who experienced awe, contingency, fear. There escaped, there encounter, gape, jawed, and silent, the God of birds and birth defects, trees and cancer, quarks and galaxies, earthquakes and supernovas, awesome, edifying, dreadful and good, more beautiful and more terrible than is strictly necessary. Let it strike you dumb with worship and fear beyond words, beyond logic. What is it? It is everything that is. End quote. That's actually a totally absurd statement. I mean, if I took the time to pick that statement apart, it is fundamentally absurd. But the point is, what he's saying is that everything that we experience, this God that we talk about, he says, begins with the first human who experienced something. And that human, and our experience of something is because we are a product of everything that is. We are a part of nature. God is waking up with us. The divine is waking up with human self-consciousness. That's the dominant philosophy of our culture today. It's not actually new because uh, the German philosopher Hegel said that the state was the divine idea as it exists on earth, or the state is God walking the earth. That is, man in his collective being is an expression of the divine. That's why the state today in Canada thinks it can redefine marriage, decide about end-of-life and beginning-of-life issues, redefine human sexuality against all rationality and biology because it believes it is an expression of the divine. It doesn't use the religious language, but that's its claim. There is no authority that transcends man and his idea about himself. Carl Sagan stated his religious faith this way, the cosmos is all there is or was or ever shall be. Amen. Michael Poole, speaking of the the philosophy of Huxley, said that Huxley vested dame nature, as he called her, with attributes hitherto ascribed to God, a tactic eagerly copied by others since, The logical oddity of crediting nature, that is, every physical thing there is, with planning and creating every physical thing there is, passed unnoticed. Dame nature, like some ancient fertility goddess, had taken up residence, her maternal arms encompassing Victorian scientific naturalism. And actually, if you read some of the best and clearest modern philosophers like Thomas Nagel, who are actually admitting that naturalistic evolution and materialism is inadequate, that it can't account for human life and human emotion and human intelligence and all of these things, is their solution to go back to John chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. No, that's not their solution. What's their solution in the face of the inadequacy of the evolutionary explanation for all things? His solution is this, maybe nature is a mind. 
after all. He puts it this way, would an alternative secular conception be possible, he calls it secular but it's pagan, that acknowledged mind and all that it implies, not as an expression of divine intention, but as a fundamental principle of nature, along with physical law. In other words, well, maybe the religious critics are right. Maybe, actually, it's true. We can't account for everything there is on this materialistic, naturalistic idea. We need a mind, but that can't be God, surely. In fact, he actually admits, very interestingly, he says that his bias with respect to God is an ungrounded assumption of preference. At least he's honest enough to admit it. But he would rather have a universe that's a mind rather than admit there is a God. Well, unlike all other conceptions of God, Jesus Christ in John's prologue reveals the truly personal, relational character of God. So in every other religious worldview, people may talk about the gods and God, but they are not talking about the transcendent, relational, personal deity, not even in Islam. He is the incarnate Word, the only begotten of the Father. Why is this important? Well, your being and mine is an integrated whole as a person. You have a mind, you have intellect, you have emotion, you, will, you have will. You cannot stand alone where there are no relationships. For example, if there is only mind, with nothing to think about, what is mind? I mean, have you ever examined the content of your thoughts? Well, hopefully you're doing it now. You're thinking about things, persons, events. You've got things to think about because you're related to your relational being in a relational world related to all kinds of things. That allows you to think. It's very interesting talking to people who speak multiple languages to ask them, which language do you think in? They usually have a dominant one, and they tend to throw in bits of the other here and there. What is mind with nothing to think about? What is will without decisions to make? What is emotion where there's nothing to feel? You, these, these things are actualized in us as we grow, as we develop, as we learn about the world and other persons around us. One of my former colleagues, a friend of mine, a wonderful Indian gentleman named L.T. Jayachandran, wonderful scholar. He said this. Now, just listen closely. I'm almost done, and then I'll let you ask me questions. Give me five more minutes, and then there's 15 minutes for questions, okay? And you'll be home in time for your hot chocolate and a cuddle with your mum and a game on your Xbox, okay? This is what he says. In God, qualities of personality can be actualized only if there is an actual eternal relationship in him prior to, outside of, and without reference to creation. I'll come back to that quote in a minute. What he means is, I'm a father 
I have three children, but there was a time I wasn't a father. So I had the attributes of a father were actualized when I had children. I had the potentiality of being a father, but it wasn't actual. It became actual when I had children. Okay? Now, only in that way, he says, would God be a personal being without being dependent on his creation. That is, if he's in an eternal relationship without reference to creation. He goes on. When Moses asked God for his name, the answer he got was least expected. I am. The amazing mystery of the name, identity of God, solves a problem that we may not always be aware of, and I've been talking about it. God is his own frame of reference. God, therefore, has to be self-referencing. God is not defined by anything he's created. He's not limited by it. This would be an absurd proposition, but for the fact that in the being of God, there is a plurality of infinite persons, and each can define himself in reference to the other. So I can say, so I'm, just, I'm going to come back to the quote, I can say I'm a son because I have a father. His name is Michael. I have a mother. Her name is Helen. I'm a son. I define myself in relationship to the other. I'm a father because I have three children, Naomi, Hannah, and Isaac. I define myself in relationship to the other. I'm a husband because I have a wife called Jenny. So I'm defining myself in relationship to the other. Now, it's only the God of Scripture who is not defined by something outside of himself. God can truly be said to be self-existent only because he is the all-personal, all-relational being. Jesus introduces the first and second persons of the Godhead in familial terms of father and son. It is not an accident that the father derives his fatherhood only because of the son and vice versa. In other words, Jesus is eternally the son because he has an eternal father, and the father is eternally the father because he is, has the son. It's his relationship to the son and vice versa that defines them. So in other words, God does not become a father when he creates us. He's not defined by the world he has made. He doesn't say, well, I'm going to grow and develop, and when I've created something, then I can be love. Then I can be father. No, that would mean God is not transcendent, not self-existent. Not self-defined. He'd be like us, defining himself in relationship to everything else. Now, that is every other worldview. doesn't have a conception of God, truly. In other words, only God can jump on his own shadow. I am that I am. Now, interestingly enough, Jesus did not hesitate to refer to himself in those terms. There's this infinite reciprocity, you see, within the Trinity. The Father loves the Son through the person of the Holy Spirit. And when Moses asked God who he should say was sending him when he was going back to the Israelites, God says, I am who I am. And he uses his, uh, two verses later, God uses a name for himself, Yahweh, which is a form of I am. I will be who I will be. What God was saying was simply this, I'm the source of all definition. I define everything. But I myself am self-defined. I'm self-existent. You can't name me. You can't define me because I define the meaning of everything. 
See, when you name something, you define it. Names in the Bible were definitions. So Abraham means the father of many nations. Imagine having that name when you didn't even have a son. He had to carry that name around for a while until he actually had Ishmael and Isaac. So when you name something, that's when, when, when Adam named the animals, when he defined the creatures, he was exercising authority over them. He was delimiting them, defining them. Now, we can't do that with God. God is the source of all definition. He is who he is. He is self-defined. We, all the families, forces in heaven and earth are defined by God, but God defines himself. And Jesus himself said, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And that is why our culture today is blasphemous in its paganism. Because today we talk about self-identifying. What do you self-identify as? LGBTQ, 2SA, and the list is growing. You two-spirited, queer, gay, lesbian, transsexual, transgender. What, what, how do you self-define? How do you self-identify? Well, we don't self-identify. We are defined already by God. If we become those who, the ones who, who self-identify and define everything for ourselves, then actually all, you, all that you can possibly have in any culture is total chaos, and that's what we're creating. Everything becomes social construction because man wants to be his own God, and that's all it is. That's all it is. You will be as gods. You can define yourself. The problem is it's a lie. It's actually the lie that the Apostle Paul refers to in Romans 1. They worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. They believed the, the lie, the definite article in the Greek, Romans 1. You see, God didn't need to create anything to be loved. There was already subject-object relationship. Let me finish with this thought here. <clears throat> if I'm going to get to know you, you get to know me, there has to be a subject-object distinction. So I'm the subject, you're the object of my knowledge, and vice versa. The distinction means that knowledge can arise. It also means that it's possible to say, you know, I love you to your mum. Because she's different from you. She's distinct from you. She's separate from you. There has to be subject-object relation, you see. Now, in God, John tells us that the Father loved the Son in John 17, 24, before the foundation of the world. You see, in God's being, there is already subject-object distinction. There's already differentiation. If you even posit the closest worldview to the, the Bible, rabbinic Judaism or Islam, <clears throat> they have a monadic understanding of God. There's no trinity. There's no eternal fellowship and community. Who was God loving before he created the world then? And if the self is defined by the not-self, that is relative to relationally subject-object, then actually those gods are impersonal blank unities. Did you know that 
Allah has many, Allah has many names, the God of the desert. He has many names, but, one, but not one of them is love. It's impossible. He's a remote, unknowable, he may as well be an infinite block of ice, which was the concept of God of the Greek philosophers. This same structure is required for love, for knowledge, for all of these areas of our lives. John tells us the world didn't know him, even though it was made through him, but we can know him. So the marvel is in that what I've told you tonight about worldview, about cosmology, there's a big word to take home and tell your dad, cosmology, okay, it's another word for worldview, is not some abstract idea for intellectuals to bat around to sound clever. You see, Christ was incarnate. He became a human being. God the Son was incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. The Word, this Word, who was with God and was God, became flesh and dwelled among us. There is no other conception anywhere in the world. This is the absolute uniqueness of the Christian faith. That God Himself, God the Son, a relational community took flesh so that you might be enfolded into a love relationship with God Himself. What does John say? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came to his own, verse 11, his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So that you can know God and be in relationship with God. And the covenant love that exists within the relational community of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Christian faith tells us that we can be embraced into the familial love of God himself. You see, God doesn't need your love as though he's, oh, I really need people to love me and worship me because I'm so lonely and insecure. God was in an eternal fellowship and community of love before the world ever was. Jesus says, he loved me before the world was, before the creation of the world. And you and I can become children of God, that is, be embraced into the Familial fellowship of God himself. That is why the Bible says God is love. It's not because he feels gooey all the time. Because we've lost the meaning of love. God is love in himself because he's a divine community of fellowship of love within his own being. He is love. He doesn't become love. He is love. And you are invited by the Lord Jesus Christ, and the world is invited into that love relationship. Outside of that, there is only meaningless social construction where man deludes himself into thinking that he can define reality. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life. John says, in him was life. Jesus says in John 10.10, I have come that you might have life and life in all its fullness. The choice actually between this oneism and twoism, there's only two worldviews, there's only two religions. The choice actually is between the kingdom of God, which we call heaven, the kingdom of heaven, and hell. And you know what hell is? Hell is actually the place where 
Man is given his desire to be his own God. It's where relationship and community totally breaks down. Everyone has their own private meaning. You are God. You know, Jean-Paul Sartre, the existentialist, said, hell is other people. Because if you are God, but everybody else is also a God, then you're there in your way. They're the devil to you. Because they're definition of all things is going to conflict with yours. Their desires are going to conflict with yours. So if every man is to be his own God, he must be completely out of community, out of fellowship, out of relationship. And instead of being enfolded in the loving embrace of the fellowship of the divine community, hell is separation from that community and from all community. It's to have your own desire to be your own God. That's what hell is. It's the destruction of all meaning. It is the Buddhist void. But Jesus is the exegesis of the living God. And that's why we have the communion meal in the Christian church, which is an illustration of our fellowship, our communion with God and with each other. One-ism, two-ism. Only two religions. There's John chapter 1, and there's everything else. I'll take 10 minutes of questions. Anybody want to ask a question? Put your hand up, and the mic will come to you. Try without it. Mm -hmm. Well, paganism has its own account of origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. So, so, go ahead. Yeah, so, um, what I was saying was that those are the ultimate worldview questions. So a pagan worldview, which ultimately denies that there is a creator, a self-defined, self-existent creator distinct from his creation, that's the biblical worldview, paganism is the denial of that. Actually, pagan actually originally just meant country dweller, because in the early Christian movement, it was an urban movement, and actually it was people in the country who were worshipped idols. People in the city tended to be Christians, so that's where the the, the idea of pa- the pagan came from, but the pagan worldview answers the question of origin, meaning, morality, destiny differently. Origins, it says that there's just a primeval chaos out of which everything evolves. And there's no, the ancient pagan myths don't try and give any sort of reason for that. Primeval chaos just is, and out of that watery chaos evolves everything. The same with the, the modern worldview is just has a veneer of scientific respectability on it. But that's what the ancient pagans believe. That's their account of origins. Their account of meaning, therefore, must be, if they're going to be consistent, now we must acknowledge straight away that most people are not consistent. (laughs) What I've been trying to do tonight is to press the logic of these two positions and show you how when people have thought consistently with these two starting points, where it actually leads. Most of your neighbors and friends, they want morality to be real. They don't want you lying about them. They don't want you stealing their money. So there's an inconsistency 
basic to all anti-Christianity. But in terms of meaning, the pagan worldview says, well, we have to construct our own meaning. And the pagans, right through to the present, the humanists resolve that in one of two ways. Either it's all a private meaning, and there you have anarchy uh, or existentialism, or you, have, you agree that there is a collective meaning. You're going to have a social contract, and that's political philosophy. Christian political philosophy is covenantal under God, Pagan political philosophy is radical democracy. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't go home and say, Joe Booth doesn't believe in democracy. No, I'm saying we should vote. Right? We, we, we have a representative government. But democracy, vox populi, vox dei, the voice of the people is the voice of God, was the collective way of humanists saying, we're going to define meaning in terms of just social contract. Now, you can d- update and change that social contract constantly. As long as we're all going to agree, well, let's now say that there are 14 genders. Okay, let's agree that. Let's put it into law. You have a new reality. So that's meaning. Morality suffers from the same problem. Morality becomes completely relative in in, um, paganism, although it tends to want to enforce that uh, libertinism on everybody else. And destiny, well, the void, non-being. That's the end of, that's the, that's the, that's the destiny of, of paganism, extinction. Now, some of the pagans believed in the Elysium field, some kind of vague Greek concept of um, the realm of ideas or spirit. You escape the body into some ethereal realm. Um, but uh, even that concept of, of there being some continuity of personhood afterwards is incoherent within paganism. <clears throat> Other questions? Yeah, oneism, sure. That's a very good question. And this is the hardest, this is the the toughest bit to explain because uh, rabbinic Judaism and Islam... Are, uh, are aping, they're copying what we would call a true twoism. So retaining that hermeneutic of an absolute creator uh, uh, distinct from his creation. On the surface, they both seem to be saying that. However, the heart of the problem is within the, was with their concept of God as a monad, okay, as a singularity. So I was trying to, and I, it may have not been as coherent as I wanted it to be, but I was trying to show you how even when we think about ourselves as a self, as an individual, how we can only really have a negative definition of the self. That is, we define us, that we, we recognize our individuality by the fact that we are not God, that we're not other people, and we're not our environment. Right? It's plurality that enables us to identify our individuality, our uniqueness, our distinction. Now, within the concept of God who is a monad, that is, blank being, no relationality, how could there be love? How could there be knowledge? How could there be will? There is nothing to know. There is no one to love. There is nothing to desire. Okay, so in a, in a, in, in a concept of a being that is a singularity, it's very difficult for us to even conceive of personality or will or desire or emotion or anything because there is no relationship, no transcendence basic to God's being. So the word transcendence, by the way, doesn't mean that God's up there. It means he's distinct. 
Now, God can only be transcendent if he's distinct within his own being. Right? This is the origin of Christian transcendence is that God in himself, in his own being, there is a distinction between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there is relational community so that knowledge can arise and what we would call um, morality or relationship can arise, right relationship, where uh, love and all of the things that we consider human attributes, don't forget we're made in the image of God, so something about you reflects who God is, a lot about you reflects who God is. Um, We cannot conceive of something that has personality or relationality that is monadic. In fact, where actually Islamic arguments for God, like the Kalam cosmological argument, don't worry about what that means, but it actually proves pantheism. Their arguments prove pantheism, that creation is not something distinct from God because God is not a person. He's not relational in the way that we conceive of personality and relationship um, so that you couldn't have the, a, 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 a point at which the divine being decided to create. So creation becomes emanation from this singularity of being. So that proves pantheism. Pantheism means all is God. All is one, one is all, all is God. So you have being on, on the Islamic and rabbinic Judaistic view. You actually have ultimately, you have the co- concept of blank being. And then somehow out of that, the world came about. But talking about will and desire and love and so on, that's why I say in Islam, one of God's names is not love. In Islam, God is not noble. You don't come to know God. You don't come into relationship with God. In fact, Islamic theology says anything you say about God is wrong. Whereas in Christian theology, God reveals himself relationally, covenantally. So when he's asked who he is, you know the answer God gives, apart from I am who I am, he says, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What does that tell you? It tells you that God is defined by his relationships with others. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's totally unique about the Christian worldview. That leaves all ideas of God as a monad, as a singularity in in the realm of oneism. If you want that argument developed a bit further, it's in my book, Why I Still Believe. Any other questions? Two down, oh, there's one down here. Yes. Romans 13. Sorry? Romans 13. Yes, very good. That's an excellent question. So very quickly, <clears throat> when we say that, um, well, <clears throat> the former leader of the Liberal Party, Harvard professor Michael Ignatieff, said very openly and very plainly that uh, the state is the object of ultimate allegiance and the source of law. He says that is the modern concept of sovereignty. The state is the source of, uh, is the, um, the, the object of ultimate allegiance, ultimate allegiance, 
and the source of law. Now, whatever is the source of law is your concept of the divine. So behind every law order is a concept of sovereignty. Because obviously to make law is to assume the authority that you're talking about. So behind all law is, an, is, a, is, a, is a doctrine of sovereignty. Now in Christendom, in the, in the past, sovereignty, which is a word never used, by the way, in the American Constitution, very deliberately, is not given to man, it's ascribed only to God. So that God is the source of, he's the source of law. And he's also the object of ultimate allegiance. Because actually to say the state is the object of ultimate allegiance is idolatry. Even the preamble to the Canadian Charter acknowledges the supremacy of God, even if the Supreme Court says it's a dead letter. Okay, so the idea of God as uh, uh, sovereign and uh, beyond and above all uh, human authority is basic to the Western principle of freedom. So that freedom was actually born uh, in history. Most people have always lived in slavery in, in the history of man. Freedom was born when... Jesus Christ claimed to be the only connecting point between the human and the divine. And I haven't got onto political philosophy tonight, but, but from this, what I've talked about this evening, develop two distinct political philosophies as well. One is inevitably totalitarian because it says all authority resides in man. If all authority resides in man, it resides in the state. You have no appeal above or beyond the state to say that's wrong or that's tyranny or that's evil. Good and right is what the state enacts. In the, what, it, what it enacts is good and right in pagan philosophy. Whereas in the Christian worldview, you have an appeal beyond the state. You can say, no, that is evil. That's wrong. We're going to oppose that, and we, we, and we are going to act in terms of civil disobedience. Now, the modern Western state has said, essentially, in its, by its actions, that we reject, we deny that there is a transcendent source of authority and law to which we are accountable. As that's why I've quoted to you Michael Ignatieff. That is a, that's not just him, that's, a, that's the Western view today of the state. Wars were fought over breaking the, the, the doctrine of, of um, uh, the divine right of kings, over the absolute power of the monarchy. Okay, The English Revolution was fought over the idea that kings could be above the law and do what they want and weren't accountable to God in terms of his law, okay? Now, God has ordained three major institutions in history, the family, which preceded the fall, the state, and the church. So there are three institutions that are all a form of government. The family is a form of government, so father and mother have a form of authority, and the Bible says that they are to be expected, respected. Honor your father and your mother. So there is an authority set within the family. That's a form of government. Then you have the church is a form of government, the government of elders. So we're told in Scripture that we have to honor our leaders and obey our leaders in the book of Hebrews because the church is a form of government as well. <clears throat> Does that mean, though, that if your father or mother commands you to do something that's immoral, that you should do it? Or if the church elders uh, do something which is wrong and immoral, that we should just fall in line and do it? Of course not. Right, well, the same is true of the third institution that God's established, which is the state. So the, the powers that be are ordained of God. God has established the institution of the state, according to Romans 13, to do one specific thing, to be a uh, ministry of justice. 
In fact, Romans 13 refers to the state as God's, God's diaconate, God's di- diaconoi, his servant. The state is God's servant for your good. And according to Paul there, its function is to punish evil and reward righteousness. That's what he says. And it bears the sword. It bears, that is, it, bears the, it, bears, it carries authority in terms of a ministry of justice. The state, the church does not bear the sword the, uh, of, of justice. The state does. Now, if the state ceases to be God's servant and says, well, we're going to define truth and morality and justice for ourselves, hang God, we're not going to be a minute. See, even in the English-speaking English world, the English language, um, we have the ministry of corrections, right? We have the prime minister. What's he ministering? What's the ministry of corrections? Well, it was supposed to be God's ministry of justice, right? That's political authority. Now, if it denies God and it says, well, well, forget God's sovereignty. Well, it's, it's made the state the new source of sovereignty and the object of ultimate allegiance. And actually, that is what we see in China today in the communist world in North Korea. It's the same doctrine of state we have adopted as the, essentially the North Koreans and the, and, and the Chinese government that uh, the state is to be the object of allegiance. Now, you may have a license and permission to worship somewhere within certain bounds. Now, that's increasingly happening in the Western world. Now, most of you, of course, nearly all of you, are not old enough to remember anything different. But the idea that the church was somehow under the um, direct uh, government interference of the state, the whole idea of church and state separation was not the idea that God had nothing to do with politics. It was to stop the state interfering in the life of the church and establishing one church as the church, as was the case in England. The Americans didn't want that. Now, there's no such doctrine written in, the Canadian, um, in, in Canadian history because Canada was part of the British Commonwealth and remains this day under the paper monarchy, at least, of the Queen, right? So we, our, uh, our situation is somewhat different from the United States. But the point in in Christendom was that you separated powers, that you didn't allow ultimate authority to rest in any one institution. You separated the judicial and the executive arms and so on. The modern West, the modern state, in its denial of God, is saying that what the state enacts is right and true and you have no appeal beyond it. Now, you can go to the ballot box and you can try and, to some degree, and you can try and get a few more people on your side, even though you're largely ignored, and voter, our democracy is failing because voter participation is so woeful in our time. But we do not believe as Christians what the Greeks talked about democracy, vox populi, vox dei, the voice of the people is the voice of God. We don't think that if the mob says this is right, that's right, do we? I mean, if the majority of people say murder is right, the killing of the unborn, does that make it right? If the majority of people say that I'm a man, but I can self-define as a woman and go and use the women's changing rooms and showers and washrooms because I feel like a woman, that that's true and right, does that make it right? Well, no, we don't believe that as Christians. We believe that God defines these things. So that's the state's role, to be God's minister of justice. When it denies the God of Scripture, it starts to claim divine prerogatives for itself then you have tyranny. And I'm, t- I'm not even suggesting, I'm telling you 
<laughs> I'm telling you that historically, that is where we are right now. We are moving into a period of increasing tyranny and totalitarianism. I live in Ontario, and right now, um, we have a, uh, a curriculum being foisted on the public schools funded by my property taxes that people don't want, but the politicians don't care. Because they have a vision of reality of the philosopher kings of a, of a superior group of pagan elites who will tell everybody else what's right, what's true, and that they're going to bring about their utopian world order. God is irrelevant. Does that answer your question? Yes, I'm not denying that. That's right. So I'm not saying that, uh, look, <clears throat> I'm not saying that when man lies to himself, it's therefore true. Of course, God is still sovereign. He can depose, the, the Bible says the hearts of kings are in his hands. Now, that brings you to the question of what's the meaning of history then? Why is Canada in, in, in why are we in this condition? Why has God allowed a situation where we no longer acknowledge God? And well, then we have to appeal to the doctrine of covenant, which is that, Righteousness exalts a nation, the Bible says. And if we move against God and deny Him and, and, and work and live in terms of lawlessness, then there are consequences. And God will raise up other nations. And there are other, I think China will be the largest Christian country on earth by two, 2050. Pro probably earlier, but certainly by then. Because of the rate in which people are becoming Christians in, in, in China. This is, there are... Christian cultures are emerging all over the world. Just because it's in decline here doesn't mean that's true everywhere. God is still sovereign. He's still in control of all of history, and we are under judgment. That's, what, that's the meaning of Romans 1. We may have been handed over to a depraved mind in our attitudes and actions. That doesn't mean God isn't on the throne, and it doesn't mean that God can't still use you and his church and his people to change things. That's what this conference is about. This conference isn't about getting some more information so that you can sound smart or, or even, you know, have better arguments. It's about the kingdom of God and about God through his people, through a faithful covenant people, changing things. I think we'll call that a night.